What are you waiting for? Welcome to This Is Not A Dress Rehearsal Podcast. Stop holding your breath, waiting for perfect conditions before you move through the world. Tune in for real stories of real people who understand the freedom to live well. Your host, Bonnie Sewell, is a veteran wealth manager with 12 grandchildren, helping clients over the last 30 years enjoy their wealth. You can listen to all podcasts at www.americancapitalplanning.com slash podcast or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Dory is a 20-year Northern Virginia transplant and proud Jersey girl who grew up five miles from New York City, New York. The mother of two young adults, she's the owner of a, thinks he is large and in charge, Lhasa Apsa, named Fango. A lover of community, the arts, poetry, museums, and world travel, she has visited 38 countries and 44 states. Passionate about a mental health wellness, she's also a social justice advocate and international speaker. She loves to read, any book will do, journals daily, and the author of three books, including one bestseller and founder of the, quote, I am, close quote, book series for women and children with disabilities. She can often be found volunteering in a community-based organization serving for the greater good. Dory works collaboratively with adults, parents, families, small groups, and faith-based organizations to address life's stressors, including anxiety, grief, PTSD, parenting, familial issues, and cultural diversity. Her high-value goals to educate, empower, advocate, and support to build healthier families, equity amongst races, cultures, gender, and stronger communities for optimum mental health wellness. Using behavior and family systems theory, the strength-based models, the coach-parent approach, and the positive communication she counsels clients with kindness, Theory, mindfulness, teaching, and welcomes cultural diversity, blended families, and LGBTQ clients. A certified family mediator, parent coach, and college professor, for 10 years, she's taught various social sciences, business, and social work courses, including sociology, culture, leadership, social problems, policy, ethics and marriage, and the family. She's the founding publisher and also served as the managing editor of a regional education magazine. A columnist, she manages a weekly blog, has published over 100 education articles, and continues to raise her voice on women's issues and mental health wellness. She's currently completing Virginia licensure social work requirements and pursuing a doctorate in social work policy and leadership with an emphasis on mental health and its impact on communities at large. Wow. Welcome, Dory. I'm so glad to have you as our guest today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. You've had a really varied career in our introduction. We touched on some of it, and you've accomplished some really tough goals. So let's start with the work you were doing when the two of us met, publishing a magazine, VA Woman. So tell me about that experience, why you did it. Yeah, Virginia Woman was a series of magazines that we did. We did one in Arlington, 
one in Prince William and one in Loudoun. So we started with Loudoun Woman Magazine and then we grew. And then when we grew, we changed the name to Virginia Woman so we could use the same brand. They were educational magazines because actually at the end of the day, I'm an educator Mm. and we did education stories about mostly women in the, in the communities that we were serving and they were business owners. So if you were a dentist, we would tell your story about dental care. If you were working in hospice, you would talk about death and dying. Mm. So that's what the magazine was about, promoting women who live in the communities that we served. Now there was advertising and we donated probably 15% in every issue to the community. So you did that for how many years? Almost 10 years. Okay. And that's a long time to survive in publishing. What do you attribute the survival to? And my next question is, I think women have, for a whole bunch of cultural reasons, trouble shifting gears, saying, I'm done with one thing, I'm starting another. So tell us how you succeeded in publishing, but why you switched gears to the work you're doing today. I think the world pushed us to stop. I just recently read that Oprah is not going to publish her magazine Mm. after December 2020. Okay. So I'm in great company. (laughs) (laughs) But I think what kept me going was I was so entrenched in the community, Mm. had a very strong presence there. And because we were not just talking about fashion, we were talking about people's business and Mm -hmm. we were educating. People wanted to share the story and often women had no other place or another space to share their story. So they used me, not used me, but we were able to build that. And it gave us a great platform in the communities that we serve. Also, Warren Buffett did some research about whether or not he should have owned the Washington Post. Mm. And he decided not to do it because he saw that community magazines is where people were going. Okay. Of course, we have COVID now, so many of those magazines have closed altogether. Right. But people are looking for information to see about themselves in the communities that they serve. Mm-hmm. So if you could see yourself on the cover of a magazine mm. where you knew everyone, mm-hmm. that was always very exciting. Yeah, I can see that. So when you stop doing that, how did you pivot over to the work you're doing today? Because they don't seem obviously connected, but I think there are connections. Well, what people probably didn't know is I never stopped teaching. Okay. I was always teaching. So I was always a professor. And as a professor, I was in education. Mm. So for me, it was the same. And because I was a social worker, I'm a good writer. Mm -hmm. And if you think about anyone who's a psychotherapist in mental health, you've got to write notes all the time. And most of us don't spend our time doing numbers like you. Mm. And we need you. I'm not saying that. (laughs) But we have to write people's stories. So you want me to continue your story and what's going on with you. So I'm a good writer. So I was always writing. I was always Always teaching, I was in an education magazine. And my subjects are sociology, which is about culture, people, and groups. Yeah. As a social worker, mental health. So I was always in the same area. Okay. And as a woman in business, I'm sure you've been told how to look and sound from those who might be trying to help. Your work with families and the kind of work that you do around mental health, that's pretty hard work. So how have you found your true self versus how people might want to see you in business? How how have you found who Dory is in business? I'm a woman of color. Mm -hmm. And so I was in a predominantly white community. One of the things I learned very early from my parents is you've got to know who you are before you get there. 
So when I talk about being a black woman, being a black woman is not about the skin color. It's about a culture. So I was grounded in my community of people who looked like me. Mm. Often I talk about uh, black women have club days on Saturday and church on Sunday. Mm -hmm. That was my, that's the roots of who I am. So I came into the community knowing exactly who I was. And I was really trying to help and propel women in a way that many women are not. But again, I was entrenched in a community of people who looked like me, believed like me, and were pushing me out there to make a difference. Got it. Makes sense. So you earned an MBA from Harvard, no small accomplishment, after earning an undergraduate degree in political science and an MS in clinical social work before that. Wasn't it enough to get an MS in social work? Why did you pursue the MBA? Well, I did the executive MBA at Harvard because it was an entrepreneurial program and I had an opportunity to do it. I think I always wanted to go to Harvard. I'm involved with family that says you get the most education that you can get. Remember, I'm a woman of color. Mm. So in the world that I live in, those degrees make a difference because they put me in a category automatically as an educated woman or not. And I'm in a sorority. My sorority says, get the most education that you can get. My parents are not college educated. Mm -hmm. My father only went to eighth grade. Mm -hmm. So when I look at a man who said, get your education so that you can have a better life than I can have, I never stopped. I'm not done yet. I'm going to be working on my doctorate. Oh, so interesting. Okay. Well, I do think there's people who I think, I hope we all learn our whole lives, but there's some people who definitely fit into the education world really well, and you are making the most use of it. And I do understand what you're talking about. It's a little bit of a flag, right? It gets you into some conversations in addition to all the knowledge you would have gained in the actual program. Yeah, I think it's a little different for women of color. Mm-hmm. And I, if we can talk about that just a little. Sure. I think people are looking about that pedigree for us. Mm-hmm. They want to hear that I speak a certain way. And then one of the things I do in my race group is to say, you don't want to judge so much by the education or by the way in which they appear with the pedigree. You want to look at the character of a person, but everyone can't get there. So I'm one who can get in there and then bring others with me. So speaking of that, you brought up your race workshop, and we've just lived through uh, several horrific shared experiences, which have uh, hopefully impacted all of us in, in important ways. Tell me about the race workshop, why you're doing it, what it's covering, who can join Talk about that a little bit. This is probably the most meaningful work that I've done in my entire life. Mm. I think what I've done throughout my life is I've always been a change agent. I've always been a trendsetter, but now I'm actually in my face doing the work. Mm -hmm. So when I went into Loudoun, there were very few women of color. Mm -hmm. I was doing the magazine. But now what I'm saying is, okay, let's really begin to make a difference. So I'm speaking to white women about white privilege. I'm speaking to white women about anti-racism. And I do sister circles and I'm talking to black women about how do we integrate more positively with larger communities, the larger community. I started the work because it's not new for me. I taught race. When you teach sociology, you teach it. Mm -hmm. When the world started changing under President Trump, I began to see that there was a need. And when we had the incidents that happened with uh, Mr. Floyd, who was killed in Minneapolis, I said, now is the time. And I, I literally overnight said, 
I'm going to get into the work that I really love. I talked to one of my partners in the company that I work with, Amy Fortney Parks, and said, let's do some worse workshops. She said, what do you mean? I said, let's try it. Let's see. We had over 20 women sign up within three days to do the first group. I said, we're on to something. Now, remember, I know Loudoun County very well. Mm. I know Prince William very well. I live in Northern Virginia. I lived in McLean. I'm well respected in the community. And I said, I want to touch one million women to make sure they understand that we want to be anti-racist and I want black women to be more comfortable with communities. And black women are saying, I don't want to do this. I'm tired of talking to white women. I said, there's no time to be tired. I'm not putting up with you being tired. Uh, I'll lead the way, just follow. And so, they're following. But I can understand that perspective. It's tough work that you're doing. And I participated in your workshop. My main conclusion, in addition to opening my eyes and heart to some new things, was it wasn't long enough. And so I'll be doing your eight-week one coming up. But you know, I'm just going to voice something that I'll bet at least one listener is thinking if you'll permit me to do that. I'll bet there's one white gal out there that is thinking, is it safe for me to go through that workshop? Will I be attacked? Is it safe for me to speak bluntly? And I can talk about my experience in the workshop, but what's your perspective? I think that, Bonnie, you were there. Uh, We talk about everything. Mm -hmm. We talk about the N-word. We talk about the Black church. We talk about what it's like to be a mother of Black children. I have a Black son. I have a Black daughter. I'm more concerned about my Black son. I think because my heart is in it in the right way Mm -hmm. and I have done the work because I've been in the community, I hope I'm soft enough. I hope I'm direct enough. But I also think my education brings a theoretical perspective. So I'm coming from my sociological perspective as one who taught sociology. I think, yeah, I want you to do it. I want people to understand there is someone out there that cares. I care. And just like John Lewis said, we're celebrating his death today, his life, and his Mm. through the funerals. If you see something wrong, you've got to tell someone, Mm. but it's the way in which you tell someone. And I hope I'm telling it with love. I think you are. That's certainly my experience. I would say that it is absolutely a safe space. So listeners should know that. But I would say too, the, the relief in being part of the workshop is that you're running it from a professional perspective. It's not a coffee clutch. It's a professionally run workshop that explores a tough topic in a safe environment. And it was extremely helpful to me, which is why I'm excited about the next one. But I just wanted you to talk about that a little bit because we're all living that. It's not going away. We've got to reimagine the future that includes how we do everything differently. And for some people that might feel like we're taking some of their pie away, but that's not the case. And I think as we reimagine the future, It doesn't have to feel like that. The longer we can talk to each other, more than 140 characters, the more we can understand each other, which leads to great solutions, creativity, imagination. So I'm excited for that part of the work you're doing. Let me just talk about you. And I know that this is your podcast, so I can talk about you. I personally invited you because of a relationship we had before we even talked about race. Mm -hmm. Whatever you presented to me said, this is a woman that I'd like to get to know. I'd like her to know more about black women. And I know in her business, she's running up against and working with women like me. Mm -hmm. Let me help her in a loving way. And so I wanted you to be part of it. And I hope that you will now have the information that you can open up doors for other women as well. I hope so. Yeah, I think that's, and I love what this horrible period has done for us. You know, so we've got a pathogen out there we we haven't conquered. We've got economic damage that's still unfolding. And we have a race problem that we're finally willing to examine. All of this is very difficult, but that maybe it's the blessing of the problems we're in right now is that we're all grown up and we're going to look at it. Yes. 
So I'm excited Thank for you. that. Thank you so much. Now, your work includes mental health of families and individuals, and we're in America, so you got a rich well to dive into there. Uh, I, I'm saying with gentle humor, but knowing that every American family usually has this in their family tree. And I've noticed that folks in social media, we're quick to label people with a mental health diagnosis from, from the strength of our chair and our, our keyboard. But what, how do you see that? Why is it important to navigate how we understand mental health and be careful of those labels? I think it's important because it's like anything else. What we don't understand, we put a label on so that we can not have to deal with it. And so when we begin to talk about mental health and we look at the number of families that have had some issues around mental health, we can then make it better for everyone. We've all had someone who had an issue around alcohol or drugs I don't know if you knew this, but up until the 1980s, if you were gay or a lesbian, that was considered a mental disorder. I did know that. We have family members, and I did know that. Yeah. What is that about? Mm -hmm. So again, if we talk about things more and we become more open, we make room for everyone in the society. And that's what I'm hoping to do. Can we talk about it? I've got mental health issues in my family. What people don't know is I've had my own battles with depression. And I think that's why I I want to share my story. I want you to know you can work through it. Now, can you work through schizophrenia? Maybe not, but you can be medicated so Mm -hmm. that you can live through it every day. Mm -hmm. And I think, too, you're mentioning depression, such a common thing in American families. And I, I feel like there are drug-free ways to attack that, drug-full ways to attack that. But what I think you're talking about is that the less we talk about it, the more it stays in the shadows and does damage mm-hmm. versus getting help we need and pursuing some sort of lighter experience with that because that seems so prevalent. I also learned in the workshop what a fan you are of books. We might spend a little time here because you can see in my office, this is just one of about five rooms in the house where we're just book freaks. But today, at the end of the day, my eyes are tired. I'm taking most of my books by audio. Tell me about books in your life and specifically how, you know, if you have any recommendations, I'd love to hear those. But I'm really interested in what you found in the world of books to help with not just the subjects you tackle in your mental health work, but also race and authors and bookstores, some of the things we talked about in the workshop. I am a voracious reader. I set a goal every year on the number of books I'd like to read. Uh, Last year, I did 44. Wow. So it's really my thing. I must tell you that my parents, um, when I was growing up, did not have books that had people of color. So there were very few. We had Langston Hughes and we had James Baldwin, but there were not children's books with brown children. They just weren't there. Well, they weren't available. Sure. You know, um, I'm telling my age, I'm 65. (laughs) I'm right there with you. I know. That's okay. Uh, So when I think about books, I would read. I wanted to know. I wanted to be more than I was in Passaic, New Jersey, about 15 miles from New York City. Mm -hmm. And I started collecting books with my dad. And he would go to places and we'd find books. And I would just read, 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 because I knew that I could have a better life. The other thing is I like to write because my grandmother grew up in the segregated South, Mm. lived there still, and we moved north. My parents moved north. I was never born in the South, but I was born in the north. I would write letters, Mm. and so she would write to me. And so between the writing and the reading, I had a full life that I created. And it would take take me to faraway places, which is how I ended up traveling to so many different countries. Okay. Mm -hmm. So... We're stuck with travel at the moment. Um, yes. do you, are you using books to still sort of travel mentally? That's how I use books a lot. 
Well, I um, started going back to the bookstore. It's really kind of funny <laughs> because last Saturday, a friend of mine called and asked, she said, um, what are you doing? And I said, you know where I'm at. She said, you're probably in a bookstore. Yes, I was in a bookstore. <laughs> My Angela was a mentor of mine. I met her several times. And I think just being around books is exciting to me. Mm. I have more books than I'm ever going to read. Mm. I'm keeping up with this in information around race right now. Mm. I love black women's literature. I love biographies. So I still do a lot of reading. And I don't mean just African-American biographies. Anyone that's about leadership. Mm -hmm. So I'm getting ready to start reading about Winston Churchill. Oh, I've not read talked to my husband. He's a Civil War buff. And, and uh, of course, that's World War II mostly. But Winston Churchill is huge. Huge for him. And, and I'm reading about leadership because mm -hmm. I'm stepping, I think, into this space of talking about race. Mm -hmm. I want to do it in a way that's inviting and mm -hmm. not pushing people away. Mm -hmm. And so I'm reading, I want to read about great world leaders. And mm -hmm. someone said, you must start reading Winston Churchill. Yeah. So anything about leadership, anyone that you want to recommend, I'm open to. Okay. Well, well before you go, maybe we'll visit my husband's bookshelves and you can borrow a book or two. There's uh, quite a bit there. I tend to win. Uh, read women's autobiographies. Mm -hmm. But in the workshop, you shared with us a very lengthy list of Black authors mm -hmm. versus books about African-American people, although some of that may have been in the list. I'm just starting at the top of it, and you, you, you highlighted some authors. But you even made a stronger point that, first of all, I wouldn't have never known about those books. It, honestly, it sounds stupid, but I would never have ventured into that space because there's so many places I have an interest and now that's become an interest because it's a valid interest I didn't even know I had till I started to learn more about it. But when we think about supporting small businesses, I, I speak around this issue and I am aware that Hispanic, Latino, Asian, and African American have the worst support in terms of capital. There's a long list of grievances there, but you have bookstores that are run by African-American proprietors. And so you had, I think, what was the name of the one? Mahogany. Mahogany. Mm -hmm. In fact, I'm going there tomorrow. Oh, cool. Yes. Okay. I, it's on my list of a place mm -hmm. to go. I want you to just speak for a minute about all the small ways that matter, that end up being big ways of how to support other businesses than the ones we're used to going to, especially our friends at Amazon and Walmart, right. if something's not a health or safety issue, can it wait? Mm -hmm. And if it waits, can it be purchased from someone who's in small business? So talk a little bit about that. Well, politics and prose is a very famous one I'm in Washington, D.C., yeah. and I do support that. Okay. Of course, I support Mahogany. I know the owners. I remember when they opened that bookstore. Though book buying the books are things that you can do. Uh, my big thing right now is to make sure everyone votes, mm -hmm. and if you're not interested in doing a march, and I, I understand that, you can go and work the polls that day. You can take the course. The course will pay you $35, I think, to take the course, and they will pay you $150 to sit and be a poll watcher. Oh, that's interesting. And so, I mean, that's a great way to be an advocate. Uh -huh. So those are things that people can do, and I think that this is one of the most important elections that we have coming up, in my opinion. Yeah. That's my opinion. I get that. I respect anyone who has a difference. But why not vote, and why not come and work that day and really make sure that the election is fair. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not about 
who you want. It's about let's just make it fair for everyone. So that's something that people can do. There are organizations that you can support, NAACP, ERA. Those are kinds of things that you can support. I'm involved on a board here for the Suffragist Memorial here in Loudoun County. Oh, Petworths? Yes. Yes. I'm on that board. And why not give some money to that? We're trying to get erect a big stone. There's money that you can give to that. Women got the right to vote 100 years ago. What people don't know is African-American women didn't get the right to vote until 1965. Which is incredulous. If you're a person past that age, you know, you were born in the 80s or 90s, you have no idea that this stuff is still happened to your parents. You just have no idea that it's that recent. Right, right. But support that because in that particular, the suffragists memorial, there's going to be a place that honors women of color. Mm -hmm. So you say, well, I don't know how to get involved. There are things that you can get involved in. And I'm not just about doing the black community. Got it. I'm about the community. Yes. The community of women Mm -hmm. who are really making a big difference. As we are looking forward to having a a nominee for the vice president, there's going to be a woman. It's got to happen sometime, right? Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, make a donation. And if even you do small things, $5, $10, you can do that. And that's part of making it bigger than we thought we could ever be. Well, and I appreciate your comment about the community. I want to put a fine point on that because your work, while you may speak a lot about race, your work is about the greater good. That's an important point to make. Even in our divorce work, people often hear us as cheering on the woman because that's the underdog. You have to face the fact that that's generally the underdog, not in every case, but in many cases. And connected to that particular underdog are children, our future. And so we talk about the family. It is often heard as the woman. So that's just marketing, probably, and also getting people to have longer conversations. But I do appreciate the fact that you're talking about the community, because one of my interests in learning more about race, and not just the Black race, but any race, anybody that feels maligned or left out, My interest in that is we all benefit from getting better. And I think it's the same thing in our our divorce work. So I think stating that is obvious to someone who knows you, but maybe not to our audience. So I'm glad you made that point. Switching gears, we've all been tested in different ways over these last months with the three things that we mentioned. We got a pathogen, we've got economic damage, and we've got uh, very severe race issues. How have you been tested in this time period? And what, if anything, has changed for you in 2020 while we're all kind of stuck home and and interacting differently with each other? I'm not having girlfriend time. I do miss that. that, But that's been okay. At the end of the day, I'm a loner. Okay. Um, And I'm a writer. And because I'm a writer, I can be by myself a lot. You asked me earlier, how did I find my true self? Mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time with myself. So I wake up in the morning, I thank God for my day, and then I kind of think about, okay, what can I do to make a difference today? Mm. And at the end of the day, I ask, have I done enough? Mm. And every day it's get up tomorrow and try and do it again. Good for you. So I think COVID for me has helped me get closer to who I really want to be. Mm -hmm. And the race workshops have come out of COVID. Yeah, I think that's a neat outcome. Yeah. Out of something so negative. Right. That's been really good. Now, my mother is 90 years old, April 14th. And so I missed my mother's birthday. But I'm going to see her this weekend. Good. Uh, And I'm excited about that. But this has been a great time of reflection, Mm -hmm. you know, and and not the busy. I sold my house in February. Mm -hmm. 
And I moved into an apartment early March. Mm-hmm. Perfect timing. Yeah. And I'm so glad I did because now I'm thinking, okay, I get to be in this small apartment and I get to just do the work that I really want to do yeah. without the encumbrance of this Taking huge care. mortgage. Right yeah. Mm-hmm. Taking care of property. It's yes. a it's a money pit. There's a reason we call it that. I'm curious if your mother has a different view than you do of this time period, or has she shared her view of this time period? I think that I come from a very strong faith mother. Okay. And I think that when I can, I asked her about it, and originally she said, well, I've been by myself a long time. Mm. And then she reminded me that I, I left at 18. So, <laughs> so I, no guilt. A little guilt on there. Pack your bags. We're going on a trip. <laughs> um, but I think she misses the senior center. Okay. That was her big trip. Uh, and she's very much looking forward for me coming to spend even three days sure. because she's in a building there and she's in, she can't leave. Okay. And recently she said to me, oh, I thought I could go out now. No, ma, uh, you cannot. So I think it's, it's harder for her. Mm-hmm. I do. And she's, I think she's lonely. Yeah. My mother-in-law, same thing. 88, same thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I call her every day. Oh, you're a good and- daughter. Yeah, I try most days. Let me. Uh, <laughs> uh, how about six out of seven? <laughs> well, I'm, I know she appreciates. I hope your weekend visit goes well. Yes. So, you know, we are in our work, we think many or most, maybe all conversations have some sort of money component. If, you know, so one of our thought experiments for people is, you know, eavesdrop in the grocery line or wherever you're out at the park or whatever. And just, you'll be surprised how many times people are talking about something to do with money. It's just kind Mm -hmm. of interesting. And once you stop and then, you know, of course, it's not appropriate to eavesdrop. So you can knock it off after you do our little thought experience. But I'm curious, how did you learn about money in your family? Was money talked about in the family you grew up in? My father used to say, don't live beyond your means. <laughs> okay, good advice. Time. My father was better at money than my mother is. Mm-hmm. I probably have followed more like my mother. Okay. But my mother was divorced. Ah. And so she had to make ends meet. Yep. And what I did, one of the biggest mistakes that I made is I did not downsize enough hmm. when I got divorced. Okay. And I paid the price. But because I'm educated and because I'm creative and innovative and can ha- I'm one who's got many lives, mm-hmm. I've been okay, mm-hmm. but I'm not in the best position for retirement. And so one of the things I'm doing now is I don't spend any extra money. Okay. I've learned that lesson. Sure. And I would like to continue to grow. Yep. The question I have is when you don't have a lot, where do you go? When yeah. you don't have a lot of resources. And are there resources for women who want to just kind of start? Because most of the people that I know who do money are men. Okay, well, that's a valid point because after 30 years in the business, less than a third of us are women in the business of financial services and less than 15% actually own a firm like I do. But I would say that we're going to create the solutions for people who haven't saved enough, particularly women, because they're still going to live longer. And in other cultures, you will see, and there's a few examples in the U.S., they're not widely known, and I don't know how developed they are, but they've lasted in some cases more than a decade. So I would say that's an experiment worth looking at. But in these cases, women get together with people they like or have similarities with. And it's not like they create their own assisted living, but in a way they do. So in fact, first of all, when you said, I learned a lesson, I didn't downsize soon enough after divorce, I'm going to say something. I actually made the same mistake as much as I know. This is my daily work. I've lived it since a child and I knew better. And I did something similar. I was so ashamed to lose the money status I had that I immediately put money down 
on another property and I had to pull it back because it was the wrong move. I recovered from my silliness, but I know better so I can appreciate that people make this mistake all the time. And one of the things that we're always trying to tell women is, we know this from research, it goes down a dip of two to five years and with persistence of not overspending, everybody floats back to a closer to where they were than if they insist on staying at that marital level of spending, right? It's very tough to convince people of that because there's a lot of emotion. That's what mine was. Maybe that's what yours absolutely, was. Absolutely. Absolutely. So getting back to your question of, you know, what resources are out there for people who have not had the ability to save as much as they'd like? I think we're still creating those. We have the social security system, but now they ask us to wait till we're 67 years old, maybe 70 before we tap into that. Well, it's still true that in our 60s, we start to have maybe some health issues and maybe we're not as employable or as able to earn the money that we could. So we have a gap there, which is called minding the gap. How do we fix that? And I think that our solutions are still being developed. And I'm just going to say this out loud. Uh, many women are dispensable in our society, just like many older folks, and put those two together and we just have a cohort we warehouse. So until we fix the problem of how we take care of people who have had circumstances that didn't let them save enough or for whatever reason, they're going to be with us for a long time. So we're, I think as a country, we're still asking those questions. And honestly, in my, in my opinion, it will take our industry changing quite a bit mm -hmm. to address that. So I, I'm glad you raised the question because the more people that raise the question, the faster we'll get to an answer. And here's something I also think, you know, I do the race workshops, I think we've got to bring in money. Oh, absolutely. And so I, I, you know, I'm, I know we're here to talk about the things that you brought to the table, but I can see you being a guest speaker in our series mm -hmm. because I talk to women. I talk to women of color and white women, mm -hmm. and most of my, my audience are 40 plus. Sure. And so I think that there's time. it's time for women to talk about this because many are divorced. Yes. And if they're divorced, what are they going to do? If I can prevent just one woman from making some of the mistakes that I made through the workshops that I'm doing, right. I think it's time. I, I agree with you completely. The other thing I think is true is that, you know, once basic needs are, are met, mm -hmm. there's a lot of ways to add what we call true wealth. And true wealth is having your health and having something to do and having uh, something to give. And there's a lot in there uh, in the actual work we do. But for people who are struggling to pay bills, I know this from growing up broke, it's all you think about. You can't think about anything else except getting the lights on and, and keeping food on the table. So as long as we're talking about people who have their basic needs yes. met, yes. then we can build on that. For everyone else, we have to have a system in place to support them because they cannot do it on their own. So if we stay with the cohort you're talking about, I do think that women need to learn money. We have a lot of euphemisms that we share with them to help them understand that money doesn't know or care who owns it, so there's no reason you shouldn't. And earning power is a particular issue, so everybody has to earn money somehow, even if it's alimony for a while, everybody has to have income. And it apparently, so I know from my industry, we've known for many years, more than 15, that most people should work to 72 or 77. Is that news to you? No. Okay. Um, only because I used to be in banking. Okay. Is this news to a lot of people? No, no, no. And I'm looking at the people that I'm around right yeah. now. So I see that. Yeah. I'm 72. I didn't know about the 77, but 72, yes. Yep. And so how old are your sons today? 
My son is 30. He's 29 and my daughter is 33. And daughter is 33. So they're a little older than our recent college graduates. But we would say when you're 22, expect a working life no shorter than 55 years. It will probably comfortably extend to 60, potentially 65. That's because of increased lifespan. And if you just think about if I shut off just what we lived through and we're still dealing with, if I shut off the economic engine, which is our income, mm-hmm. I have to figure out a way to pay for stuff. If I don't have $2 trillion sitting around like our government apparently did, mm-hmm. I'm up a creek. So we tell those people, now, if you think about that long work life, you and I are both living it. We're working longer than maybe we thought we would. They have an opportunity to think about their work life as choices and not you know, this long extension of I've got to show up somewhere and stay for 55 years. That's not what we're saying. We're saying you have so much time to work. You can do it in stages at different ages. There's a whole bunch of stuff you can think about. So the working world is, but to your point, bringing in economic diversity Mm -hmm. to a race discussion, they're so intertwined. And I don't know how we're going to talk about race if we're not talking about the way schools are funded exactly by zip code prevents a lot of economic fairness there's just one example after another i'm thinking now and i my sister's circle i have three women that are going through a divorce mm. and i don't know what they're doing but i can tell you when i talk to them on tuesday night mm. i'm going to ask okay great yeah because our group is a sister circle and it's a sister circle called self-care okay well you can't have self-care if you're not talking about money right absolutely and just so you know not only us but other people too but we do have a two-hour free on-demand webinar for just the finances and divorce. We share it with anyone who asks. Oh, I'm so glad I'm here. Thank you for inviting me to share this information. You're welcome. So a little bit more of a fun thing. We asked for the year of your birth because we know that uh, from the time that someone is born to about five years, you actually start to learn about money. So I'm curious, you know, if you knew what you know now about money as a girl growing up age five forward, what would you tell your five-year-old self and your teen self about money? What would you tell a young woman she should know about money today? Own your own business. Own your own business. Oh, yay. I, I would. Totally now, agree. remember, I um, have always owned a business. Yeah. I had, we had a library in my home, uh-huh. and you could come and rent the books. <laughs> and um, if you brought them late, I would charge you. <laughs> and I also made cards. I also did a, we had a magazine route. And the magazine route, because at that time, TV guy, right. at that time, that was a big deal when you got TV in your home. But I would tell her to own her own business. I, I just think if you want to be your true self, your true, true self, continue working on you, but find something that you love yeah. and the money will follow. I agree. You got to hang in there. You might be broke for a while, but it's a really a great path. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. So a fundamental belief that we hold on the podcast and one of our whys for doing it is sharing real stories. We learn from each other. We get to know each other. We bridge the distance between each other. What story can you share with our listeners about how you, Dory, know that this is not a dress rehearsal? I live by my faith. I just believe so much in the bigger picture. And this, and you got to play the long game. Yeah. I'm playing the long game. I mean, when we started these race groups, I go back to I've been teaching, I've been doing this education magazine. I'm playing the long game because at the end of the day, all I'm going to tell women is if you're true to yourself and true to your work, at the end of the day, you will feel like that man or woman in the glass. You've been honorable. Integrity must be impeccable. Mm. 
I love that. Thank you. One more. I believe business women are some of the most optimistic people on the planet. Uh, recent events may have tested that optimism. How do you stay optimistic? Is it your faith or something it, else? It is my faith. Okay. And I, I'm playing the long game. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, here I'm starting a whole new, I mean, one million women I want to reach. You'll do it. That's pretty optimistic. But, and this is not about making money. This is about making matter. We could charge so much more. I mean, I could put that little Harvard piece on there and yeah. say, this is what I'm going to charge, but you can't reach enough people right. when you have that. And I'm trying to reach people. Yeah. I want to be fair to myself yeah. because I do my homework. Yeah. But at the end of the day, you know, yeah. Very good. Well, I can't thank you enough for being a guest on our podcast story. I really appreciate your time. Oh, I thank you so much for having me. We wish you continued happiness and good health and success. If you'd like to learn more about Dory, along with her work and her workshops, you can learn more information at Dory, D-O-R-R-I-C, like Charlie, Scott, S-C-O-T-T dot com. And you can also learn about her at thewisefamily.com. So that's DoryCscott.com and thewisefamily.com. Thanks again, Dory. Thank you so much. This podcast and any related material is provided for general information and entertainment purposes only and do not constitute accounting, legal, tax, investment, or other professional advice. For professional advice in any realm, contact the appropriate professional. We assume no representation or warranty, express or implied, for accuracy or completeness of content. We assume no responsibility for information contained in the podcast and disclaim all liability in respect of such information, but not limited to any liability for errors, inaccuracies, omissions, or misleading or defamatory statements. Links to external websites are provided solely for your convenience. We accept no responsibility for any linked sites or their contents. Use of this podcast and its content constitutes an explicit understanding and acceptance of the terms of this disclaimer.